0: So I'm not recommending that anybody do this, but if you were to do some research on North Korean prison camps, you would quickly realize that you don't want to be in one of these camps. And yet, there are people who are being held captive in North Korean prison camps who are more free than the people who stand guard over them prisoners who have more freedom than the authorities who put them in these prison camps. I can also confidently say that 200 years ago or so, at a time when slavery was legal in parts of this country, there were many slaves, slaves who were viewed as property and treated as property, who actually enjoyed a far greater freedom than the masters who owned them. Slaves who possessed more freedom than those who possessed them. To take it one step further, there are many dead people who are more alive than those who walk over their graves. People whose bodies are in the ground who are more alive than those, than many who are driving past us on Meridian right now. Possibly more alive than some who are sitting in this room this morning. So I, I know that nothing I just said appears to be true. Everything I just stated is contrary to how a dictionary would define words like freedom or death. If, if you were to ask Google to define freedom, one of the top results will say that freedom is the state of not being imprisoned or enslaved. And yet, I just made the claim that many imprisoned and enslaved people have amazing freedom superior freedom. Death is defined as the permanent stopping of all the vital bodily activities, yet I just claim that there are some whose hearts have stopped beating and whose brains have stopped functioning who are not dead but are very much alive. Well, this morning we're going to consider what Jesus has to say about freedom and slavery and life and death. So please turn with me in your Bible to the gospel according to John. The gospel according to John. In John chapter 8, which is where we will be this morning, Jesus makes some extraordinary claims. But the question is, why should we listen to what Jesus says at all. Why should we care? Why should we take him seriously? There have been many people throughout history who have made extraordinary and outlandish claims, but Jesus is the only one who backs up his claims with extraordinary signs. If you read through the book of John, you'll see Jesus miraculously feeding thousands of people. He walks on water, he heals diseases, he restores sight, To a blind man, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And finally, after being dead himself for three days, he walks out of the tomb alive. And then we come to John chapter 8. Jesus is in Jerusalem for a Jewish festival. He's surrounded by a crowd of people in the temple. And he's interacting primarily with some religious leaders who constantly challenge him and question him always trying to get Jesus to say or do something that would incriminate himself. So look at what Jesus says to these religious leaders in verse 23 of John chapter 8. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are from this world. I am not of this world. We would be wise to listen to Jesus, who claims to be from above and not of this world. He has insight into the nature of reality that we simply can't know apart from Him. And so, with humble and receptive hearts, let's listen to what the Lord Jesus has to say to us in John chapter 8. This morning, we will cover verses 31 through the end of the chapter, but We are going to work through it in three sections. So please follow along as I read the first section, verses 31 through 38. We'll actually back up to verse 30 for some added context. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 30. As he, Jesus, was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Before we discuss this passage, would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you for your life-giving word. I pray that you would give us listening ears this morning and humble and receptive hearts as we consider what you have to say to us from this passage this morning. Show us our need and show us also how you have met that need, our greatest need, through your Son. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. So to help guide our time in the text, I have a main idea and a simple three-point outline. Uh, The main idea, the big idea is this. True disciples trust in Christ alone for freedom and life. True disciples trust in Christ alone for freedom and life. And the three points we'll consider are true liberty in verses 31 through 38, true lineage in verses 39 through 47, and true life in 48 through 59 but before we talk about true liberty we need to think briefly about who jesus is speaking to in this passage because a straightforward reading of the text seems to suggest that the people who are said to believe in jesus in verse 30 are the same people who eventually pick up stones to throw at him at the end of the passage it could be it could be that Those who are opposing Jesus here are the same religious leaders who have been opposing him all along. But look at the end of verse or look at 30 verse 31. So Jesus said to who the Jews who had believed in him. And then the rest of the passage seems to be a conversation between Jesus and those who are said to have believed him, which means that there is a kind of faith, a kind of belief that is false. It's phony, it's lacking, it's inadequate. It's not true saving faith, though it may have the appearance of faith. So look at verse 31 again. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And and the fact that Jesus speaks of true disciples here at least implies the possibility of false disciples. And this isn't the first time in that the concept of false disciples has, has come up in the book of John. At the end of chapter 6, we see a whole crowd of people who were following Jesus after he miraculously fed them, but then Jesus teaches some hard things and John tells us that after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And there are similarities between that passage in chapter 6 and the one we're looking at today. In both instances, people have been wowed by the signs that Jesus performed. They've been amazed and, and, and impressed by his teaching, and they thought, yeah, this is the guy to follow. We, we've never seen anybody like him. And so they hopped on the Jesus bandwagon. But then Jesus would say something that they didn't agree with, and they were off the Jesus bandwagon as quickly as they had got on. And so while it's not a pleasant thought that someone could be, someone could have the appearance of belief but not truly believe or have the appearance of following Jesus yet not be a true disciple, the Bible teaches that this is a possibility. And so it's not something that we should ignore. It should make us all the more attentive because the book of John gives us a picture of of what true belief is and what it looks like to be a true disciple, a true follower of Christ, and experience the life and the freedom that only He can provide. And so, what characterizes a true disciple? What characterizes a true disciple? Look uh, at verse 31, where Jesus tells us If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He says, if you, will, if you abide in my word. To abide literally means to live in. With the idea that true disciples don't move on, and they don't move out, but they continue in the word. They hold to the word. They live their life in a way that is consistent with the word of Christ. Meaning, that even if our friends and family, even if the whole world were to abide in a different word, or hold to a different understanding of the world, we must remain in the word of Jesus. The so-called disciples of chapter six did not abide in Jesus' word and were proved to be false. And those who are said to believe here will soon prove themselves to be false as well because they can't handle the truth that the truth will set them free. They're offended. They're offended by the suggestion that they need freedom at all. Verse thirty three they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They refuse to accept the fact that they need to be rescued. They refuse to admit that they are enslaved. And we see in this the first signs of their false belief because their faith is not in Christ alone. Their faith is in Christ plus descendants of Abraham. And Christ plus anything equals false belief. They were trusting in in their bloodline which would be similar to to someone today saying I I was raised a Christian so I, I must be a Christian. Or I'm an American, so I must be a Christian. No, true disciples trust in Christ alone for freedom. But Jesus doesn't leave them or us guessing what kind of freedom he has in mind here, because he tells us in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. When Jesus said earlier that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, this, verse 34, is a significant part of the truth that we must know in order to be set free. We must know that we are slaves to sin. Because the person who doesn't know that they're enslaved, the person who thinks they're free, will never look for a liberator. They'll, they'll will remain enslaved. And we must know this truth. And this is not a mere intellectual understanding. This is heart knowledge. This is feeling the truth that we've stacked up a debt of sin that we can't pay. And we're enslaved to that sin debt. We have to acknowledge the the truth that we are in a debtor's prison that is far worse than any North Korean prison camp. The good news is that there is someone who can pay our debt and set us free. We just sang about it. And that debt has been paid, but it needs to be applied to our account. And the only way it can be applied to our account is to trust in Christ alone for freedom from sin. Verse 36. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Indeed. And we love the idea of freedom we love the idea of freedom but we need to be careful to remember that the liberty or the freedom that jesus offers is different from the liberty mentioned in the declaration of independence or in the pledge of allegiance one nation under god indivisible with liberty and justice for all when when americans think of freedom we usually think of things like freedom of speech freedom of religion freedom of assembly and none of these freedoms are bad and we should be grateful if we enjoy them, but none of them are promised to us in this life. And none of them are included in the freedom that Jesus has in view here. He's talking about freedom from sin, a far greater freedom, freedom from the penalty and power of sin. And one day when Jesus returns, true disciples will enjoy freedom from the very presence of sin and all of sin's effects which means that the North Korean prisoner who abides in the word of Christ is more free than many Americans who don't. Jesus goes on in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. And if you were speaking to this country, he might say, "I, I know that you are Americans. I know you enjoy certain freedoms. Yet, verse 38 You seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. He acknowledges that from their earthbound perspective, sure, offspring of Abraham. From our earthbound perspective, yes, we enjoy certain freedoms. But from a higher perspective, from God's perspective, none of those things are of any true Lasting value, especially if the word of Christ finds no place in us. So, are you abiding in the word of Christ? Have you experienced the freedom that is only found in Him? Because our citizenship, our upbringing, our lineage can't meet our deepest need can't set us free from sin. But here they refuse to accept that this man, Jesus, has any greater insight than they do. And so we see the tension begin to build as we move on to the second point, true lineage. So follow along as I read verses 39 through 47. They answered him, But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So here they, they double down on their insistence that they are children of Abraham. That they're the chosen people of God. And it is true. And there is biblical significance to the fact that the Jewish people were descended from Abraham. Way back in Genesis 12, the Lord told Abraham that he would bless him and make his descendants into a great nation, which he did. And then the Lord says this And you, Abraham, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We know that the offspring of Abraham failed over and over to be a blessing to the nations. But as the Old Testament narrative progresses, we learn that the ultimate fulfillment of this promise would come through a single descendant of Abraham who came to be known as the Messiah or the Christ. And you don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 20, John tells us his purpose for writing this book. He says, I wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Jesus is the one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. And sadly here, these offspring of Abraham were looking into the eyes of the offspring of Abraham, the promised Christ, and they rejected him. They wanted him dead and they even go so far as to insult him. It's likely that word had gotten around that Jesus was conceived by an unmarried mother and so when they say in verse 41 that they weren't born of sexual immorality, they're insinuating that Jesus was born of sexual immorality immorality. They are insulting the Son of God. Their disbelief is being revealed. Their opposition to Jesus is being seen for what it is. And I know it's rare that we meet people who express this level of animosity toward Jesus. But these Jewish unbelievers are giving us a picture of the animosity that exists in the hearts of of all unbelievers, even if their rejection of him appears to be a polite rejection. So if you were to share the gospel with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, and if they responded by saying something like, I'm glad that works for you, but I'm good. I'm, I'm doing just fine without Jesus. That response even though it may sound polite, is really saying that there's no reason for Jesus to exist. They would be happy to eliminate Jesus from their thoughts, which really isn't that different from these Jews who insult him and seek to kill him. at okay, verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And if we cannot bear to hear the word of Jesus, then what he says in verse 44 applies to us as well. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. What he's saying is that they more closely resemble the devil, the enemy of God, than they resemble Abraham, the friend of God. And so before he told them that they are slaves to sin. Now he takes it a step further and he says they're children of the devil. So we have to ask, what is Jesus doing here? Is he just resorting to insults because they insulted him? No. What Jesus says may sound harsh. It may sound unkind, but it's actually the most loving thing that Jesus could say to them. Imagine a health and fitness enthusiast. The kind of person who exercises all the time, never puts an unhealthy ingredient in their body. Like, they're the epitome of health and fitness. Now imagine that this person goes to see a doctor for a routine checkup, and they're told that they have a life threatening tumor. And the only way to be set free from this tumor, the only way to live, would be to entrust themselves to a surgeon who can remove the tumor. But rather than believing the doctor, the fitness enthusiast starts talking about all his healthy habits. All the supplements he takes, the half marathon that he ran last weekend, how great he feels. He even shows that there's no history of disease or cancer or tumors in his family. And he refuses to believe that he has any life-threatening ailment. Would it be unloving or unkind for the doctor to provide more evidence for the tumor? No, it would be unloving unkind if the doctor didn't provide more evidence. If he said, oh, oh, you think you're fine? Okay, great. Just carry on with your short life. And that's very similar to what's going on here. These religious Jews were convinced that they were spiritually healthy, that they were spiritually fit, And they might point to how well they kept the law or their synagogue attendance or their physical lineage as evidence that they couldn't possibly be as bad off as Jesus says they are. And they're offended by him and they attack the only one who can help them. And we have the same tendency to trust in our own perceived goodness. Our list might look a little different. We're law-abiding citizens. We pay our taxes. We give to charity. We read our Bibles. We attend church. We're not hurting anyone with how we live our lives. And these are all good things. And many of these things are are, are necessary for those who desire to follow Christ. The danger is that we can so easily and subtly shift our trust off of Christ and onto these things even those of us who are true believers can forget that we are totally dependent on Jesus for everything that apart from him, we can do nothing. So the bad news here is that by nature, we're in the wrong family. We have the wrong father, but the good news of the Bible is that God can change our family through Christ. He can take us from being children of the devil to being children of God. In John chapter 1, verse 11, it says this, that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If there's one thing I want you to take away from this section of John 8, I want you to see the love of Jesus in diagnosing their sickness, in diagnosing our sickness, in in revealing our true condition, and then pointing us to himself, the great physician, the only one who can heal us. For those of us who are Christians, it's our responsibility as followers of Christ to tell people about their spiritual condition and point them to the great physician. We call this evangelism. And the first part isn't ba- isn't isn't fun, that the bad news part that we're slaves to sin and enemies of God, separated from the family of God. Like no one should enjoy talking about that aspect of the message. If you enjoy talking about the bad news, something's wrong. But it is necessary to share the bad news. Because until a person knows their true spiritual state, they'll never look for a liberator. They'll go on with their lives thinking they're okay. They'll never look for a lineage changer. Until the bad news is acknowledged, the good news will never be embraced. So we'll move on now to our third and final point, true life. Those Jesus was speaking to here refuse to acknowledge the bad news and so they continue to attack their only hope. And so look with me at verses 48 through the end of the chapter. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus had just diagnosed their souls and they attacked him again saying he was a Samaritan and had a demon. They were saying, in effect, that Jesus was the sick one and that they were in better spiritual shape than he was. This would be like the health and fitness enthusiast after having just been diagnosed with a deadly tumor, pointing his finger at the doctor who delivered the news and saying, your diet isn't as clean as mine. Your exercise routine isn't as vigorous as mine. You don't look as good as I do. You have the tumor, not me. Their words were meant to cut with the intent to harm. The words of Jesus were also meant to cut, but with the intent to heal, like a skilled master surgeon with his scalpel. But they refused to get on the operating table. And so Jesus continues on. He barely acknowledges their insults, And then he says this in in verse 51, one of my favorite promises in the Bible. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now remember, this whole time, Jesus isn't talking about liberty, lineage, or life from an earthly, physical, dictionary definition perspective. He's talking about true spiritual realities that we can't see with our eyes, but are more real and more significant and more lasting than what we experience with our senses. And this is a sweet promise with some wonderful implications. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death, especially as we think about those we love. Who have died, or to use the Apostle Paul's words, those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. And we can say with a great deal of certainty that some who were dearly loved in this church, who have fallen asleep trusting in Christ, are not dead, but are very much alive. Glenovy isn't dead, Tim isn't dead cynthia isn't dead they never saw death in the truest sense of that word and they are at this moment experiencing a kind of freedom and life that we can't fathom but it's a freedom and life that are the promised possession of every true disciple of christ every true child of god but that which is a sweet promise to true disciples was outrageous to everyone else. So they mention Abraham again and the prophets who all died and then they ask Jesus, do you think you're greater than Abraham and the prophets? Who do you make yourself out to be? And they're asking the right question. They won't like the answer, but they're asking the right question. And since they insist on keeping Abraham as the centerpiece of this conversation Jesus gives them some fun facts about Abraham that they they were unaware of in verse 56 he says your father Abraham he rejoiced that he would see my day he saw it and was glad Abraham lived 2000 years before Christ and so they respond you are not yet 50 years old And you have seen Abraham? And then Jesus makes the greatest, grammatically incorrect statement of all time. In verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Notice that he doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He's not merely saying that before Abraham was born, I existed, although that would have been true as well, but he says before Abraham was, I am. Their minds would have instantly gone to Exodus, where the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush and tells him to go to Egypt to rescue the Israelites from slavery. And in Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 13, Moses asks the Lord, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Not only... Is Jesus greater than Abraham and the prophets? He is their God. The God who created all things. The God who made a covenant with Abraham. The God who rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. The God who spoke to his people through the prophets. Jesus claimed to be the great I Am. To be Yahweh. To be the one true God. And their response shows that they knew exactly what he was claiming. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They determined that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, which was a capital offense for the Jews, and they were ready to execute him on the spot. But he slipped away because his time had not yet come. Jesus was going to be killed, He was going to die, but it would be in his time and in his way, and it would accomplish his purposes. So what were his purposes for dying? Apart from the death of Christ, all of the things that we've been talking about this morning, true freedom, true inclusion in the family of God, true life, apart from his death, all, those things, all of those things are unavailable to us. In order for us to be set free from sin, it was necessary for Jesus to lay down his freedom and suffer the bondage of our sin. In order for us to be forgiven and accepted as beloved children of God, he would have to be forsaken by the Father on the cross. And it was necessary that in order for us to have true life, eternal life, Jesus would need to suffer and die on a cross for us. In the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen, Jesus traded places with us. And we know that he accomplished his purposes because three days later, He rose from the dead. And now we're called to respond. There are only two possible responses to this good news. There is no neutral ground here. We either believe in Christ and abide in his word, or we pick up stones to throw at him. Now, obviously, those who just reject Christ outright, pick up stones to throw at him. But we also pick up stones when we refuse to believe that we're as bad off as Jesus says we are. We we pick up stones when we believe that there's a better freedom and life to be found somewhere other than in Christ. We, We pick up stones to throw at him when we half commit. There is no half commitment when it comes to entrusting ourselves to Christ. Half commitment is no commitment. To half commit is to believe that we still have something in ourselves that can contribute to our rescue. Charles Spurgeon calls this kind of person almost saved, but altogether lost. And I pray this isn't the description of anyone in this room this morning. I'll close with this. Apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin, children of the devil, and spiritually dead. In Christ, trusting in Christ and abiding in his word, we are truly free. We are the children of God and eternal life is our possession. True disciples trust in Christ alone for freedom and life. And if the Son sets you free, you are in free indeed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have provided a way for us to be rescued from our sin and raised to new life through the gift of your Son. I ask that you would help us to believe in him, help us to trust in him fully, For those who have never put their faith in Christ, Father, I ask that you would open their eyes to see the seriousness of their sin and to see the provision for that sin, for that need in Christ. For those who have put their faith in Christ, Father, I pray that you would strengthen our faith and whatever our circumstances are in this life, God, give us the strength to abide in your word We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.